I don't think they'll give up the control, but here's what I think will happen. You'll choose a currency that you trade in, and underneath that might be AUC or AUD or whatever, uh, but I think that you yeah, might okay. choose a currency and there'll be a layering, but you won't see. Yeah, okay. Right, gotcha. so you might, you might be someone who's like, oh, what do you trade in? Oh, you know, I, I trade in, uh, in Bitcoin. Oh, no, I still stay with the AUC. You just might have a different way of doing yeah, it. Okay. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the future, you know, you go to buy a house or whatever and it has two delineations of yeah. coins. Yeah. You know, where you might say it's the same thing, it just, it's just a yeah, different terminology. that's right. It just might have different terminology. Yeah. It might say, you know, uh, one Bitcoin or, or um, you know, 12,000 AUD or whatever it is, whatever yeah. the exchange, I think is six or 7,000 now. Yeah. So I think that's what you'll see. And people will choose what they trade in. And all, underneath all of that on the blockchain will be all the configurations of what that's worth and the mm. cross-referencing in that currency. But I've got zero doubt that we'll move to a crypto environment. So democratise it, yeah, make it easier. It, so make it easier. It's, like when, um, it's a good 10 years away, yeah. at least. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers, and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we dive deep into the world of Steve Sammartino. It was awesome to be invited into Steve's home and to go on a wonderful trip back to his adventurous childhood and to hear his exuberant passion for all things entrepreneurship and rethinking how we live and work. Steve is a highly regarded and in-demand futurist and keynote speaker and author of two most amazing reads and highly recommended, The Lessons School Forgot and The Great Fragmentation. Steve also writes a must-read and subscribe weekly blog you can find at his website, stevesamartino.com. Some of the topics we cover today with Steve include why all children are entrepreneurs and the way we work in the future will be largely freelance based. We travel from cryptocurrency to going off the power grid to the rise of regional areas as you can create a successful business anywhere with a global customer base. Buckle up for a great ride. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning. Thank you so much for joining us today, Steve, uh, and thanks for welcoming Tick Media home. That's pretty cool. This is the first time I've done an in-home interview. So. This is where we get the real conversations, in the <laughs> enclaves of where humans live. That's right. We do, um, obviously, we do a lot of focus groups, or lots and lots and lots of focus groups, but we also do lots of in-home interviews. And the cool thing about when we do in-home phone, uh, interviews with, uh, with consumers is, uh, is you, um, you, you kind of, it's, it's almost like that when they come into the focus group room or that sort of like that, that non-real kind of environment, it's almost like they're a bit awkward, like the consumer's a bit awkward. Are. But when you go into their world, it's kind of like we're, we're a bit awkward um, in terms of just feeding in. But they're just so open, so you kind of have it. So, kind of thing. so hopefully, well, you're always an open guy anyway. You know, so you God, know me. So God, I'm not going to hold back. I'm God, help me. <laughs> God help me. I've had my coffee, so thank you very much. Um, I'm going to start this interview off where I start every other interview uh, we've had on this, this, sort of, this show so far. What were you like as a young boy? 
adventurous. Yeah. And I think kind. I think I was always nice to people, but I, I wanted to try new things a lot. And I wanted to, I like mischief. Never really did anything, I think, naughty or harmful to anyone, but, you know, climb on roofs and up trees and want to experiment with sport and just take on adventures and just easily bored. So I'd always just do something that maybe my parents didn't like. Never nasty or bad things, but adventurous things where I, I had nine broken arms as a child. There you go. There's a number, the stat that So give me some examples. What are some stories that you've okay. to show you're adventurous and curious? And uh, So I used to go and swim down at the river when I was like, I reckon in grade one or two, and mum and dad wouldn't know, and I'd just go down to the local river. No one does that now. And we'd jump off the tree into the river. We didn't even know what was under there. And we'd go swimming in there and do that. I broke two arms at once when I was in a farm once playing on this haystack, and we're jumping from one haystack to the other, and I missed, mistimed it, and I fell onto a concrete floor from nine feet and broke two arms and split, split my hand open and the bone sticking out and had concussion. So yeah, they were the type of things that I used to do. Yeah. Sort of like physical adventure stuff. You're not sort of indoorsy, mostly outdoorsy, really. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Werribee, which is an outer western suburb of Melbourne. I mean, it's a big place. Now, when I was there, it was like a little country town. And, um, and I spent the first few years in the suburbs, houses of it, and then we moved on to a farm. And I think my parents did that to keep me and my brother out of mischief because we couldn't go anywhere. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, we, one of the interviews we did was with Tim Jarvis, who's a polar explorer, and he talked about his childhood, and he grew up He traveled, grew up in the UK, then moved to Malaysia, and he talked about this, that, yeah, that adventurous, and I can, it made me think about my own childhood. We had times when we'd, we were living in Launceston in Tasmania for a while, and we'd, me and my sister, and we would have been, jeez, early primary school age, and we'd just disappear on our bikes. Yeah. We were climbing cliff faces, like little were. tiny edges. And I'm going, I remember my sister's name's um, M- Melissa or M- Mel, and we'd be climbing up this cliff face. And I go, come on, Mel, you'll be all right. And it was like just like 20 metres. And you, you're thinking, we did that. And we we're actually okay. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of kids. There's a whole bunch of kids that didn't make it to where we are. At the bottom of the Caribbean. But do you think we've taken away that, that playfulness of kids because now there's more, more stuff happening online? Yeah, I think so. How do you keep that balance? I reckon the online stuff was the reflector, not the director. So what I think happened was we used to take more risks for a whole lot of reasons. I don't think we were exposed to when something bad happened to a kid. Mm. We just kind of accepted it. I just this sounds crazy, but I wonder if it's like people had four, five, and six kids. It's like you have a couple of spare ones. We're going to lose a couple (laughs) along the way, and that's part of it. So they're out there. And maybe our parents were a little bit busier. They had more work to do. They couldn't really, they couldn't really rope us in. And so I was the same. I would be in grade one, grade two, see a mum back for dinner, gone for stretch. She wouldn't know where I was. Mm. My kids haven't been ten meters away from me unless they're at school or somewhere really formal. Yeah. So as much as I was on the opposite side of the ledge, I'm now I'm one of those helicopter parents, and I don't know what ha- I don't know what happened. Yeah. But I just think that I think that the media exposure to the risk has infiltrated our minds. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the risks are probably, maybe they're greater, but, you know, there is a real danger here that kids are just not self-sufficient and can't explore and can't skin their knees. I mean, that's that's really missing, and I reckon it's noticeable. Yeah, it is interesting. Is that, it's kind of keeping that balance, and that it's, I guess it's that point we're kind of making in the nicest possible way. Maybe people have more kids back in the day, one for they didn't look after their birth control as yeah. well. But they had spares as well. <laughs> no, and I, I honestly think that when you have less kids, 
It's like when you have less resources, sometimes you really look after the resources you've got. If you've got more resources, maybe you're a bit more flippant about what you've got because there's always more in the bank. Maybe that's mm-hmm. the, the mindset with kids at a subconscious level. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, okay. So you as that child, so were you studious? Were you like, did you like, like education? No, I actually, I really liked learning and I loved school in primary school and I hated it in high school. And I think I liked it in primary school because it was more explorative. And I was at a public uh, primary school and there was a real culture of learning and enjoying learning and almost competitive to learn really well at that school that mm-hmm. I was at. I went to Werribee Primary School and that was fun. And then high school, I, I wasn't. I was always curious to learn. But, you know, it's funny. I think that I've learned more since I've finished university because now if I want to know something I'm interested in, I can find it and I can dig in deep into that topic Whereas in the past, you if you couldn't find something on that and you went to the library and there was no book, you shrug your shoulders and that's the end of it. Where else are you going to learn that stuff? You can't mm-hmm. explore your own curiosity. It was like all you could explore was what was given to you on the plate in front of you at school or that mm-hmm. library and it was so restricted. I thought it didn't facilitate the type of learning that I wanted to do. And high school becomes this pyramid scheme of grade 8 maths and grade 9 maths and subjects and it's these seven core subjects that you choose from. And it was so limiting that I just didn't enjoy it at all. Mm. You know, there was a couple of subjects. I liked economics at high school. That was the only thing I really liked. That and phys ed, and not the phys ed sport, but the phys ed, you know, learning about biology and everything because I was into sport and that was interesting. So they were the only two subjects I liked and I just kind of scraped into university. Like I wouldn't get in today, mm. which is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and and I, it's way, but it's the way I think you've written... Um was it the rule? The, the, the lesson school, school forgot. Forgot, yeah. So yeah. it's that whole thing about how we how we educate. Yeah. I'm always one of the things that we do a lot of education. One of, one of the areas we do a lot of research in is education, and we still hear the, hear the stories about year nine, year ten, kids start getting told or asked, "What are you going to be when you finish school?" So and it's actually your job. They're going, "What job are you going to have yeah, when you're twenty two? And you're going, "Wow, that's just so insane." Where in the interviews we've been having deliberately like this, going back to their childhood, it's. It's, a, it's an area of interest. So I wonder if we almost need to flip it a bit to be what's that area you've got of interest and that interest almost becomes a thing. Like if it's science, then it's science, but it's not about going, I'm going to become a doctor. What, what, what do you kind of think yeah, about how I, we do education? That's, that's a really good point. And the area of interest is, is, I think, a really nice way to phrase it. I make sure I never, ever tell, ask my kids, what job do you want to do? Mm-hmm. I say, what things do you want to do? Because I don't want to limit it to a job because a job means you go and work for someone else and I don't believe in that. Uh, and the other thing too is I had someone ask me yesterday, some students from Melbourne Uni, I was doing some uh, a talk down there and a couple of kids said, oh, I don't know what I want to do, what industry I want to go into. I said, for, forget trying to determine what you want to do. I said, run a lot of experiments. What experiments do you want to do? And do as many things as you can quickly and quit quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they say, don't be a quitter. No way, be a quitter. Go and do something for six months you don't like it, quit. Do the next thing, quit. Do the next thing, quit. Experiment until you find something you like, mm-hmm. right? So what experiments do you want to run? And this whole idea of, oh, what am I going to do? I have to choose. It's almost as like as if we say, you're not allowed to change your mind. Don't change your mind. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to change your mind. Yeah. This is crazy. Got to have one career with a company. Got to look stable. Bull crap. Yeah. So if you think about your... Um, I guess what would you say? You sort of the you the helicopter view of you, the way your life's gone. Those sort of sweet points that have got you to where you are today. What what are they? And they could be positive points or yeah. negative points. Well, 
I always sort of had an entrepreneurial flair, but the reason I didn't pursue that is that at the time when I finished school, no one was starting businesses or startups. The barriers to entry were high. No one was going to do a business. So I just went through uni because that's what you were meant to do. And so I went to uni. I, I studied economics, which I liked. I genuinely liked that. And then you're not going to become an economist. So I went into consumer goods and worked in marketing and sales and general business kind of roles in big corporations. I'm going to be honest. You know what? I mean, I tried hard in the early years and I did well in the first couple of years. And then after that, I struggled. I just struggled. I spent 13 years of struggle because... What do you mean struggle? I just struggled because it didn't really fit in. I hated having to go to work nine to five. I hated having to wear a tie. I hated having to follow the political patterns of what works in the big company to get promoted and compete in this tennis tournament for wages. That's what it is. You're competing against people who are meant to be your friends and your colleagues for the job. It's like, it doesn't even make any sense. Or oh, we all work together as a team oh, and then we choose the best team member for the next promotional job or the next layer up in a company. Mm. And, and you're really not doing the thing that you're trained for in marketing. Actually, you're, you're managing politics. If you're in a big existential organisation... It's just politics. That's what wins. Being good at your job has got almost zero to do with it. I, I, is that I, the same when you, you went from being a brand manager to being Yeah, to being a brand agency. manager, senior brand manager. But, and but then you went to an agency side, ad agency, agency side? Agency side I, I worked for in a, in a bit as well. And that was a little bit more entrepreneurial because you have short cycles of, of working with different customers and it's a little bit more entrepreneurial pitching and winning business. So it operates more like a small business or like a little startup, but it still has that political side of it. It mm-hmm. still has that. Because I was working for the world's biggest ad agency that was just one of their agencies at WPP. Yeah. But, you know, the thing that I found is that companies want to shape you so that you fit within their structure, whereas when you're an entrepreneur or a freelancer or work for yourself, that the art is different. You've got to bring out the true you and then people who need the true you will hire you. Mm. And so in my career, I struggled for a lot of those years. It wasn't until I did my first startup in 2005 or something, I did a, a sharing economy startup called Rentoid.com. And that was when I really started to, to – that was when you know Web 2.0 happened, self-learning. I was doing a startup, working on new ideas and exploring technology. That, that was when it all just started to happen for me about 10 years ago. Mm. The first kind of – 10, 13 years of my career was just, I was just in this labyrinth of mm. corporate do as you're told. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. You know, when we have, one of the great things about what we do is obviously we're a research agency, but we get to work with different organisations and I love them. We've got young guys that have finished uni and they'll, they're coming out all sort of wide-eyed and excited yeah, yeah. and I want to, want to take over the world. Yeah. But, but, but I also think, I think there's an assumption. I think when, when you start out as a child, you assume your parents, you, you, you're a baby and you assume your parents know everything and then you, you learn, well, maybe they don't, they're just there's people. And I think when you finish uni, my sense is there's that assumption that the guys that are doing stuff, the leaders, they all know it. And there's that kind of realisation. You suddenly go, you go, oh, my God, everybody's just winging it. And that's what I love yes. about what our job is. You're just there going. And it's actually kind of, it's scary thinking politicians are winging it and these marketers or whatever they're all kind of making it up as it goes and and you go wow there's this scariness about the almost like a runaway train but also that opportunity that you can do it but it requires i guess organizations that are willing are willing to listen to different perspectives and i kind of wonder sometimes in that corporate government world when you're part of the the cogs and the wheels whether you can't, you just have to kind of go along for the ride you can't it's a it's a, it's a any big and successful company becomes a machine and it's very very hard for you to be anything but a piece 
in that machine. If you want to not stop it or not clog it up, you've got to go with it. Mm. You know, when I graduated from uni, the thing you said there is so important. I thought the CEO must be the best person in the company. That oh, was my net right. assumption. Well, they're the CEO. They must be the smartest and the best. And the person above me must be smarter and better than me. Mate, they are so weird. Actually, I think the opposite is true. I actually reckon the best people don't make it to the top. That is that is my honest belief unless you built the company or started the company, I do not believe you're the best person in the company. You are the best political manager. Mm. Rarely one in ten, one in ten, the, the best or the smartest person that everyone likes and is good at what they do gets up there. But I reckon, based on what I've seen, yeah. in these big companies I worked in, I've worked in a number of them, it's not the case and everyone is winging it and no one knows anything. It's yeah. what I, I truly believe that. It's fascinating, isn't it? They, it's almost like the person who makes it to the top discovers like a little niche within their persona that enables them to climb that ladder and they've got this little trick or a niche that they use. They might be good on the lip or really good at data and it just works in that company and then they find their way up and they have to get – you get ordained, you get picked. Why does someone get promoted? Because someone above them liked them and picked them. That's how it happens. And to think it's anything more than that is would mean you would have to lack an understanding of how humans really behave. Mm. But I wonder if it's actually almost breaking it. It's, it's – I think sometimes we, we glorify those people that are at those higher levels and almost like it seems that step, that's almost like the after stepping up like the mountain, we kind of might get to that kind of point. But if you break down what their role is, say is even a CEO, and we've all, all due respect to the CEOs we deal with and, and who are out there that, that are doing great things, but essentially the CEO is someone who's very good at taking across the organisation the reports of a number of other managers bringing it back and being able to... And distilling, deli- and they're, distilling they're, that back to the board. distilling and, their careers, right. That's right. And this the board is, the is sort of the same. The board's the board good at reading the financials, but often people yeah, don't on the board. Directing and, finances and directing where we should invest and the CEO needs to inspire and then get the, the right resource allocation and then talk about how those allocated resources are coming about in the market and, and being facilitated and what the results are of that mm. and then assessing the market and, to, well, this is what's happening and now we're moving here. You know, they, they become chiefs and, and the core skill is usually building belief and verbalising what's mm. happening. It's not really doing anything. It really isn't. And, and yeah, that's a skill set. But it's actually the skills that you need to become a leader are very, very different from the skills that you need to do in your job. And it's and it's ironic that the people who often get promoted up don't have the skills that they need when they when they get there. They're, they're two different skill sets and mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of a little bit upside down. But I don't think you'll ever change it. That's that's just the nature of hierarchy. That's the mm-hmm. nature of humans and that, and that's it. And you've just got to ask yourself whether or not that's right for you. Yeah. So when you talk about the rise of entrepreneurship, or you might not say the rise of entrepreneurship, but you, that's the general sort of yeah. tone I'm getting, um, we, we did some work recently, and it was around the an entrepreneurial ecosystem. We had a bunch of, I'm going to say, younger people. Uh, they were sort of some uni students, some school students. And I said, "Do you want to create a job, or do you want to get a job?" And I can't explain what that meant. Create a job means you start a business, and, and get a job means you just finish uni, go and go and get a job. And and for the vast majority, I'd say, if let's say there's ten people in the room, eight of them said, probably even nine of them said, "I'll." Oh, definitely want to get a job. I'm, I'm going to get a job and that's what my parents expect me to do and a very, very small proportion saying I'm going to create a job. What, what, do, what do you, kind of, what do you think in that? That actually surprises you, me. You I, th- it to be I thought it would be much higher than that. 
I think different marks. I, I, some of these interviews we've kind of covered that I think the US is in business schools in particular, I think it's something like 80% and I think Finland and places like that might be sort of closer to 50%. Um, but, but just, yeah, just that's, that's that, a bit that Australian, surprising. whether Australian culture does encourage people to be entrepreneurs? Do you think it's changing? Oh, it definitely doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. And even we might be a little bit more exposed to startup culture because maybe we live in that world, right? We, yeah, we live in an right. exploratory world. And that's where I was a bit surprised. And I went home and asked my own daughter, and uh, she's got a dad and, and mum involved in a business. Yeah. And she kind of just told me to shut up, Dad. I'm watching telly. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, she, but, but you could see she's going, I don't really know what entrepreneurship well, means. here's and, the thing. I think that people want to get a job because the thing that happens when you're at school is – Every weekend, you want to have enough money to do whatever that weekend. Yeah, and okay. job, the narrative in this country, job equals money. Yeah. And I actually think the real question is, is do you want money? And they say a job is a certain way to money, whereas inventing jobs or creating jobs, maybe that's a bit more long lead and they don't, they don't want to take that. But I've got to say that there's a real problem in our country, and it's in most Western countries around the world. There's two words we hear from any politician. Turn on a TV for seven seconds, approximately seven seconds. I'm making this up, Jason. And you will hear these two, two words, jobs and growth. Yeah. Jobs and growth, jobs and growth. You can play jobs and growth, bingo. Mm-hmm. Right? Here's the thing that no one understands is that jobs, jobs don't just, just appear in midair. Entrepreneurs create jobs. Mm-hmm. We don't have this entrepreneurial narrative. Maybe if we had that narrative, both in the schools, not what are you going to study to do this course to get this job, but what are you going to go out there and invent and create? What problems are you going to solve? Why do, if, as soon as you ask someone what problems are you going to solve when you grow up, then all of a sudden people are thinking about doing something that might make things better. And also if it's a problem, it means no one's solving it. So therefore it has to be an entrepreneurial thing by its pure nature. Mm-hmm. And so we need to get rid of the jobs and growth narrative. It's terrible. It's this silver bullet factory centralised thinking. Mm. Do, you, do you can, – can an entrepreneur be made or is it just within, within them? I'm assuming when you were a young guy, maybe you didn't think I was going to be an entrepreneur, but you might have yeah. thought – that might be something that's in your head. I, I, I'm kind of remembering back that when I was a child, that's kind of that was kind of in my, my mind a little bit. And it was I, a lot in my mind. I didn't know the word entrepreneur. I just wanted to make money. Yeah, I want. I want. Yeah, and I, I, want I actually had an organic egg farm when I was twelve. Yeah. Okay. Right. And that wasn't. I couldn't get a job legally until I was fifteen. So me and my brother started this organic egg farm. Where we were going to sell eggs on our farm to people, and we did that, and we made a lot of money at the time for, our, mm. for how young we were. Five hundred bucks a month, you know, in the early eighties or something, and so. Uh, we were doing that, and I didn't even think of it as an entrepreneur. It was like, well, I just wanted to make money and have money, and I can do these eggs. These are the resources that I've got, and I'm going to bootstrap it because I can't get a job because I'm too young. Mm-hmm. So it was, I wasn't even thinking about entrepreneurship. I was just thinking about how do I get money, and I'm just going to pull something together yeah. with the resources that I've got. Uh, so, but that was inside you. I can back again, going back to, to Tasmania of. Uh, Every Saturday night, geez, I, I, I'm, there was a little thing where I made a little trolley and we'd walk around door to door selling newspapers. There you and go. I would be pitch black. And once again, like, that's a thing probably wouldn't let your kids do nowadays. But we should, maybe we should. But we, we'd, I'd pull around and there was a little, I still remember a little chihuahua that used to live out the front of a house and you'd walk past his house and he'd go, yep, 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 all the oh, way yeah, out yeah, the street. Yeah, and there was one point where it was a Christmas time and people used to leave money and it was, it was just so awesome. You'd be walking around this yeah, kid at like 14 I did a paper or 15. Round too. And, I did a paper round. I, don't, I think I was 10 and I would get up at five in the morning in the dark in winter and ride around on my bicycle delivering 120 newspapers for $11.60. Mm. And I did it every day a week, two hours, two to three hours, seven, six days a week. The only day we had off was Sunday. Mm. Right, and I got paid $11.60. Yeah. 
right, but I think that entrepreneurship much. was in you. But I just wanted money because I wanted to buy a BMX and I wanted to buy a computer yeah. and I wanted to have things. And so I thought, well, if I want to have things, I've got to go out and earn it. Yeah. But I reckon, here's what I reckon. I reckon kids are born entrepreneurs and we kick it out of them. Yeah, okay. Yep. That, we, it, yeah. we are all born entrepreneurs. You ask any kid, like we're born artists and entrepreneurs. We're born those two things. Mm-hmm. You ask a, a one-year-old kid, are you an artist? I say, yeah, sure, and they'll be drawing stuff. You can see in this room over there, my, my daughter's drawing the cherry blossoms right over there, Jace. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're, all, they're artists, yeah. right? And then if you ask a, a, a grade five kid, half of them will think they're artists. By the time they're in grade seven... There'll be one person who does art and graphic design who thinks they're an artist. Yeah, okay. right. And yeah, we're born entrepreneurs yeah, yeah. because kids make stuff and they go, look what I made or maybe I can do this. And they're like asking you how to get money. And they're like, well, if I do this, can you give me that? And I'll do they're, they're, they're putting the resources together and then we tell them to stop organizing resources and just start memorizing and learning things. And right. we kick it out of when, them. When does that happen, do you think? What I reckon it starts to happen at the end of primary school. Yeah, okay. Because it's That's interesting because kids do set up the own. I remember our, our younger daughter uh, setting up the lemon sta- lemonade stand out the front of the the, um, the driveway, sort of yeah. with people walking past, and it's just something that would have come from her saying, "I want to do that," and took the photo, put yeah. it on Facebook. Mine hasn't done say. that kind of stuff, but she, she, you know, my daughter especially is always making things, and and I, and I say to her, I say, "Well, where would you sell it, and who would buy it, and why would they buy it?" I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm really purposely being like a tiger dag when it comes to entrepreneurship, yeah. okay. because I know that. The probability of people working for others as time goes by is going to evaporate. Yeah. Like there won't be such a thing as jobs. I reckon jobs are a short-term anomaly for the two, 200 years of the Industrial Revolution, which are about to go away forever. So tell me more about that. So the unemployment rate in 1600 was 0%. And the reason was no one worked for anyone else unless you were working for a king or a government or, you, 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 you were, or in an army. You basically work for yourself. You're a craftsman, you're an artisan, you're a baker, you're a carpenter, whatever. Right? And then during industrialization, if you made tables or bread, the factory opened up across the road and they could sell them at 10 times less the price of what you could sell it for. And Henry Ford and the other said, I'm going to pay you 10 times what you earn now to come and work for me because they were making a 1,000 times as much money. Mm-hmm. Right? So we all just traded in our artisanal skills. Now... The friction of employment meant it was easier to work for others for the last 200 years, and now that friction is being removed. Anyone can find anyone with the skills that they need for whatever that job is. 70% of the work that we do is informational. So what will happen is we will still work for big companies but as independent contractors. Like freelancers. Yeah, like like freelancers. Highly paid freelancers. I'm not talking about the gig economy. That's a more exploitative version of peace labour. That's all that is. I'm talking about in the future. So I work for big companies. Eight out of my ten of my customers are big companies, but I just come in for a day or a week at a time or an hour at a time to give them what they need and then I move on. That'll happen because we can earn more money doing that because the company can just pay us for what we produce and pay us more than we would just sitting there all week waiting for that work. And uh, we'll, we'll work for more companies independently because they can find what they need and we'll be entrepreneurs who work for one, two, three customers, maybe 50. I think that the future is freelance, mm. Absolutely. And all the stats point that way as yeah. well. Uh, one of our interviews, Dr. Fiona Kerr talked about, well, we're talking about robots and how robots can replace certain things, but they can't replace uh, creativity, imagination and, and leaps of faith. And I, kind of, I worry a little, like, one I worry about when, um, when organisations force, force their employees to become almost like robots, the process yeah, become robot-like. That's exactly right. 
or, or like and litigious. And the other side, like I worry about, is going not not everybody's creative. Not everybody has imagination. Not everybody like there's there's like those people that maybe don't have that thing. They don't have it now. How do you kind of get those people that maybe? You know what? But more people fall for. All right, here's what I reckon. Here's what I reckon. I reckon everyone is imaginative and creative. Yeah. But I reckon they don't believe they are, so that they don't display it. Hmm. Right. So here's an experiment that's worth doing, and we should all do this. The listeners, you and me, we should when we have just little conversations with people over a cup of coffee, say, "Hey, are you creative or an artist or imaginative?" And see what they say. And if they say that they're not, and at least I reckon half the people would reckon that they're not, ask them about what they do in their spare time, mm. what they do with the things that they actually enjoy doing, whether it's a sport or you know some sort of craft that they do or gardening or cooking or anything that they do. Tell us about how you experiment there. Here's what you're going to see, creative, imaginative behaviours. Mm-hmm. I just think that there's a certain percentage of the population who, because of the type of tasks that they do, you know, you're, let's say you're an accountant or an engineer, the people say, oh, it's not that creative. Well, I don't know. Maybe it is that we narrow people in to stop being creative. I, I truly, honestly believe that humans are creative tinkerers. That's that's in our yeah, nature. Yeah, it's yeah. in our species. I just think that it gets kicked out of us all. We're not confident enough to show that we're creative or we get indoctrinated not to be creative. Like, think about, think about what we wear to work. That's yeah. the most important thing any company can do if they want to have a creative organisation. Like, if you tell people what to wear, have a dress code, you, the first thing you're saying is, don't think too much. In fact, don't think at all. The first thing I want you to do when you wake up in the morning, before you've even got to work, is think about what you wear so that I will be happy. Mm. Right, you want to yeah, kill creativity? Yeah, yeah. Have someone follow a rule as the first thing they do in like the morning. Like a uniform or the like. Well, and, and here's the thing. The least creative organisations have the most strict uniforms. Have you noticed that? Look at McDonald's. Look at the military. Mm. Right. Look at pilots. Right. So the more strict the uniform the least creative the organisation. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So let's sort of... So one of the points you made before about money and that kind of can... Obviously, it's, it's critical and it kind of it's, it inspires entrepreneurship. What's the future of money? I, I know you sort of talked about things like crypto. Are you talking, about, are you talking and, about crypto or are you talking about earning it? Because they're two different things. Let's sort so of, the, so the money is of, a... Because te- money is a technology. Yeah. But the technology is a facilitator of commerce. So do you want to talk about the future of commerce and how we earn or the technical side of money? Because they're, they're both interesting well, topics that of, are changing. Let's, let's touch on the sort of the, the future of like, earning. But we've kind of touched... We've, we've talked a little bit about, about freelancing about, and the likes. But yeah. I, I would like to kind the of know... The future of earning and then let's go on to crypto. Your, yeah, sure. Yeah. So the future of earning is this, is that money never ever goes away it just changes places so the example i'll give is that people say well these jobs are going to go away well that's true jobs jobs have always gone away so there's not many bison hunters anymore right so so that job goes away but now i've got 1.2 million app developers in the world which is pretty easy language to to learn you know it's six months worth of coding training and you can build apps so money never goes away it just changes places if i had a hundred dollars in 1990 maybe i bought a cd for thirty dollars that CD's not going to get bought now, but that $30 mm. goes into data on my phone or a Spotify subscription. So it just changes places. Mm-hmm. Right, what we need to be nimble enough to earn money is to know where the money is moving. And the best way to see that is how people are spending their money on the street because that happens before it appears in some financial report about the jobs that evaporated. If you're observant 
you can see it. Yeah. Okay. So money just changes places, and we need to be nimble of our mind and watch our real environment, not watch our phone, watch the world around you to see where people are spending money. Hmm. And money will never evaporate. Once it's in the economy, it never leaves. That's why economies grow. Yeah. So if you start seeing money going in a certain direction... You've so got to go to say, that direction. Let's say people buying Netflix or Stan subscriptions, right. we go, oh, they're doing that. Well, that, therefore, that's a bit exactly. of a warning sign for a Right, and a in agency library. land, you know, a lot of digital agencies started to come up when social came on board, but the traditional media agencies sort of thought that that wasn't a real threat and it wasn't and, and then that new opportunity opened up mm. so we, we build on top of the tools that exist so I think that the type of way we'll learn money will A be freelance and I think there'll just be shifts and the shifts will be how will this new technology substitute the way that that problem used to be solved so the way entertainment used to be solved was you drive down to Blockbuster yeah. and you stand there and have an argument over which movie you want to watch because you don't really know and all the all the uh, <laughs> new releases are gone and then you you know you buy an ice cream for the little ice cream tub then yeah. you come home and you watch it and then you spend thirty dollars on late fees yeah and then Netflix <laughs> said yeah. here's what we're gonna do we'll send you one in the mail you just send it back whenever you want keep it as long as you want because their first version was physical yeah it was Right? And then they went to the, with, you know, for $10 a month, you can watch as many things as you want. Right? So then what happened was that, that money just went from Blockbuster to Netflix. That's all it had, just changed places. Mm-hmm. Right? And then that's it. And the, but then you know, there's other opportunities with Netflix. You know, Netflix have coders and developers, and then they start employing people to make their own movies and their own content. And so then what's the ecosystem that builds around that technology shift? And often that's where new job okay. opportunities come. It's the ecosystem that starts to live on top of it, of that new organism. So you need to sort of think about it almost in this biomimicry fashion. And is that thinking – I wrote something recently about how – no, they did a presentation about regional areas and how they need to think about how they can create a business from anywhere in the world, from anywhere. Yes. Like, that, that's, um, yeah, from anywhere and sort of conquer the world and, and, and grow it. But they can also look at how they're employed. So they don't need to be employed with a, an employer that's based in that town. They can, they can work for – I think WordPress is quite proud of the fact that WordPress is, is great at it, yeah. Do you think other organisations are doing that kind of thing? They're like not that? doing it, and I'll tell you why they're not doing it, because they have been trained to believe that unless you can see someone working, they're not working. Mm. If I ever get people working for me, and I, I, I outsource piece, bits and pieces yeah. of stuff that I need done, right? If someone says to me – I'll, I'll do this design work for you, Steve. I don't care if it takes them 10 hours or one minute. I don't even mm-hmm. care. All I care about is the output and the price. That's yep. all I care about. So you'll go, this is the price for this This is output. the price. Yeah. This is the output. If it takes you a second, I don't care. Yeah. If it takes you 10 hours, I don't care. Yeah, okay. We've got to stop thinking that work is related to how many hours you yeah, okay. you're there. That, Rather than that an hourly the, rate, it's an output that, rate. That yeah, is the most ridiculous form of thinking, and people forget where it comes from. You know where it comes from? It comes from the fact that Henry Ford said... I'm going to pay you per hour for piece label. How many hours yeah. you're there? It's Frederick W. Taylor, scientific management with his clipboard, working out how much stuff you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? We should get paid for the value we create, not the hours we're there. Yeah. It's foolish thinking. Having someone driving a traffic jam to an office so you can watch them that they're working. Mm-hmm. I've had people say to me, oh, well, we, we couldn't really have our people not work, work from home because we don't really know if they're working. And here's my answer. If the only way you can tell someone is working for you as if you can see them and you don't know what their output is, then you shouldn't be employing that person. Because the trust is not there. Trust is not there and you should be able to judge them on their output at the end of the week. If you have to see their output, if you have to see them that they're working on something, 
well, you've got a real problem yeah. with why you're employing someone. So is that having employees changing to have very clear tasks? And no, clear outputs, not clear tasks. Yeah, okay. What clear. do you want them to achieve yeah. and when do you want them to achieve it by? That's it. Okay. Right? If, if you've got a clever employee who can get the work done in three hours and work from home and you get the output you need at the end of the week, shouldn't you be happy for them? Mm-hmm. Maybe the fact that they go jogging or surfing in the afternoon when they got the work done for you, Jason, from home, yeah. maybe that's why they can do it in three hours. Yeah, okay. that, that's open-minded yeah, thinking. Yeah. Maybe that person is really working 24 hours because they think things through in their off time yeah. and in their okay. clear-minded space to get that thing done. I'll tell you a really interesting story. There was a, there was a man who outsourced his job to China. He was a coder. And he got, he went online and arbitraged lower rates to get people to actually do his job for a large corporation. Did it for seven years and he'd just go on Reddit and watch YouTube videos while other people were doing his work. <laughs> they found out and they sacked him. Yeah. Here's what I would have done. I would have brought him in and said, teach us how you did it. We're yeah, about yeah. to promote you because you're the type of person we need. Now, I know that you might say, oh, well, he's sharing confidential information and all that. But you know what? That's, that's, yeah, sure, there, there's some challenges there, but, for me, that's what we want. Mm. At an agency level, you can, I don't know, you can, it's one of those sort of topics I've been thinking about ourselves for our own group of, um, so we, like, we essentially sell people and we sell people's time. That's a, a large yeah. amount of what a, a consultancy does. So what, like, so it, it's really about we're selling, we're selling the value output. So from an individual member level it's saying this is what we need you to achieve as in an output. Yep. And this is what we're paying you to achieve yeah. that. Are you happy with yeah. that? What pay? Great. Yeah. And we're yeah, happy with yeah. that? Good. And and what we need to do is, and anyone in the service industry, I don't think you should charge clients hourly rates. Because as soon as you charge an hourly rate, you've delineated, you can modify what you do. Mm. All of a sudden, you're, you know, coffee grains or barrels of oil. Yeah, okay. You don't want to be in that when you're in the intellectual business, because the thing that we get paid for is the value that we create, yeah. not the thing that we make. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right? Because how much value are you creating? And I always say that to people. I say, look, I don't get if people say to me, right? I do keynote speeches, and they're quite lucrative. And if anyone ever questions how much, and they say, well, it's only one hour. I say, no, it took, took me forty years to be able to do that. Yeah, okay. You're getting you, what you're buying is the expertise. When you go to a doctor, you're not paying them hundred dollars an hour. Mm. You're paying them for ten, twenty years of study. And that's what we've got to start bubbling up in an emotional, creative, connected economy. We've got to start to remember to pay humans for the value they create and not start thinking about what we do as commodified piece labour or hourly labour. Yeah, okay. But as you've been confident also in, in, in your keynote speeches of saying this is what it's worth and holding strong on this is what it's worth. Yeah, and I don't always do it, right? Yeah, Sometimes yeah. I'll, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do, right? And I'm still trying to move up that learning curve. You know what happens too? People respect you when you stand your ground and if you, let's just say you charge double the price for something because you really thought that was what it was worth. Well, if you lose half your customers, that's okay. Mm. If you charge double the price yeah, okay. and you get the ones who respect your work. And here's what I find. Those who always want to cut me down on price are always the hardest customers to work with. Mm. Those who pay you what you're worth, respect it. And here's what I do too. Now, when I get someone to do some work for me, I hired someone to film, do some filming for me yesterday. I don't even know what she's going to charge me. A friend can Because you trust them enough to know. That, I, I yeah. don't even know them. They came through a friend who I yeah, know. Okay. I said, I need someone to do some filming. He said, call Teague, and I did. I said, just send me an invoice today for what it cost, whatever your full rates are, and I'll just pay it. Yeah, okay. Now, I'd look, you know, if she came back and said it was $10,000, you know, I'd fall off my chair, right? But yeah. there's a certain price parameter, 
and she's going to send it to me. I said, and I'll pay you today. Yeah, okay. Because I value your work. I don't want to undercut you. Yeah, I know within the realm of what that type of work pays for, and I'm happy to pay that price. Yeah, okay. You know, because what I want to do is build an ecosystem of trust where we value each other. Because the more we pay each other, the more money there is in the economy because Mm. we invent money. You know, if I, if I cost me $80 to produce something and I sell it for 200, that $120 didn't exist before in the economy. We literally invent money. That's Mm. why the economy grows. Only 8% of the physical money exists that people can make a claim to. So the money doesn't really exist. Yeah, okay. Right? What it is is it's a system based on trust that we will pay someone more for what they created than it cost them to produce, and that's how economies grow. And people don't understand the fundamental baseline of how an economy works. And if we understood that, then the fear of jobs going away and robots eating our jobs would, would evaporate because people who think that are very, very poor economists who don't understand the fact. Because this whole talk of 40% jobs going away to robots... Only one of two things can happen. If all those jobs go away, then the people who were working in those jobs can't afford to buy things anymore. And then the company who put the robots in doesn't have any sales anymore mm. unless they steal it from other categories. Yeah. And if they do that, the economy shrinks. But here's what happens. I know this for sure. When companies can make things cheaper, other people can make it cheaper too. And it reduces the price of things and it reduces the cost. And then those people move into other jobs and then freeze up money because the prices come down, and then we build new things. Yeah. That's what happens. People just have a very poor understanding of history and economics and how things work. Yeah. Okay. So when you move on to, if we move on to cryptocurrencies, in the discussions we have with clients and the likes, mm. it's generally not understood. And I don't know whether it's just an adoption of new technologies that we wait until it's more mainstream before we we get onto it. Uh, and then you hear about things like. Um, cryptocurrency mining and, and the likes and people start going, oh, wow, I want to be in that but my head's exploding and yeah. then you hear about the price going through the roof and you go, oh, well, I've, I've left it too late, I'll, I'll just get off it. Can you just give us a bit of a – I know you've written a few things and uh, about blockchain and cryptocurrency. Yeah, and so I'll give, I'll give the crypto 101 and then yeah. the blockchain, right? The blockchain is the technology that makes crypto possible, yeah. right? That's the basic thing to know. So the blockchain is the internet and crypto is a web page. Right? That's, yeah, yeah. that's a way to think of it. There's a lot of chicanery right now. When there's any new technology, uh, there's a lot of things flying around. It's a land grab. People are trying to make money. And, you know, we are swimming in snake oil right now. Now, just because we're swimming in snake oil, it doesn't mean that the technology itself per se is bad. Just like in the dot-com boom, you had 90% of those companies, Boo.com and Pest.com, all fail. The dream of the internet of what it would be kind of came true, right? It just took 10 years, 15 years before all of that sort of chicanery went away. Now, let's start with a fact about money. Money is a technology. Hmm. Money itself is a form of technology which facilitates commerce. And it always has been. And it always has been. If we go through the history of currency, we can have an understanding. So the first ever currency we had in barter economies were things like cowrie shells and shark's teeth and so on. Uh, then in the Iron Age, we moved on to ferrous coins, which is, you know, stamping ferrous coins, which is a form of technology. In the Age of Discovery, we had bills of exchange. In the uh, Agricultural Age, we had grain receipts. And in the Industrial Economy, we had fiat currency, which is our current model, which is government-ordained currency, paper notes, which are really essentially promissory notes, right, so that we mm-hmm. could trade. 
and we needed money so that we could trade because it's you know it's hard to trade you know a pig for a chicken and how many chickens is worth one pig and all of that. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying yeah. that somewhat. It turns out that every time we've had an epoch in technology or a new revolution, a new currency has arrived at that time. And in a digital global economy, we will have a digital global currency. I don't know if it'll be Bitcoin or Ethereum or which one will win, but we will have it and maybe we'll have a number of them. Cryptocurrency allows us to trade online and digitally without having an intermediary. Because what we use instead of having a some sort of important person's head on the coin or the or the paper note or a government backing it, what we have is this cryptography backing it. Mm. So each crypto coin is is or you know cryptocurrency is a singular unit and so we will trade it but right now what we've got is a real user experience problem where it's difficult to use it's difficult to get on board it's difficult to understand but imagine a future where you have auc australian currency crypto right instead of aud it's australian crypto Right, ordained by the government, goes in there and we all start trading cryptocurrency. And you just have a digital wallet where you've got your bank account and how much you've got there, ready to trade with people, and it's all there. And it's just like your normal money now, but it's a crypto. Right? If you have that and you can just wave to someone's phone or just send it to Amazon or whoever you want to buy things off, it would be easy, right? So is there a benefit of having it so it's a, it's a, it's a local geographic cryptocurrency versus a global cryptocurrency. Yeah, I and mean, here's what we'll why, have. Why is that? Because I, 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 I would have thought one of the benefits of a cryptocurrency is a bit like sort of feeding back to your points about um, the freelance economy and yeah. people will be more entrepreneurial. Like, it means we, you, can, you could work anywhere and you can get basically paid in the same rather than saying, am I US dollars or yeah. pound or the Aussie dollar? You can go, it's, it's this global cryptocurrency. I think it should that, be global and I think it would better be better to be global, but here's what I think will happen. Governments will intervene because they don't want to lose fiduciary control. Okay. That's, yeah, I thought about that long and hard. So the and Australian dollar might flip over to be an Australian yeah. dollar cryptocurrency yeah, that's kind of right, version. that's okay. right, or, or another version of it. The other thing that I – because they need to have access to quantitative easing and tightening and all of those things with mm. interest rates and the economy. And the way the government funds infrastructure projects is, is really just giving loans to banks who yeah, then put okay. the money out there. People don't know. The whole thing's a bit of a hoax. They just – put money into the economy. They literally invent mm. economic value by slowly drip-feeding money into the economy. That's how it works. I don't think they'll give up the control, but here's what I think will happen. You'll choose a currency that you trade in, and underneath that might be a AUC or AUD or whatever, uh, but I think that you yeah, might okay. choose a currency and there'll be a layering, but you won't see. Yeah, okay. Right, I'm so you, sure. might, you might be someone who's like, oh, what do you trade in? Oh, you know, I, I trade in... Uh, in Bitcoin, I oh, know I still stay with the AUC. You just might have a different way of doing yeah, it. Okay. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the future, you know, you go to buy a house or whatever and it has two delineations of yeah. coins. Yeah. You know, where you might say it's the same thing, it just, it's just a yeah, different terminology. that's right. It just might have different terminology. Yeah. It might say, you know, uh, one Bitcoin or, or um, you know, 12,000 AUD or whatever it is, whatever yeah. the exchange, I think is six or 7,000 now. Yeah. So I think that's what you'll see. And people will choose what they trade in. And all, underneath all of that on the blockchain will be all the configurations of what that's worth and the mm. cross-referencing in that currency. But I've got zero doubt that we'll move to a crypto environment. So democratise it, yeah, make it easier. It, so make it easier. It's, like when, um, it's a good 10 years away, yeah. at least. Yeah, okay. Because it's going to take a long time because it isn't that the technology, and the technology's got its own hurdles as well. It's too slow to trade and it's mm. too expensive and mining's so expensive. It's, it's, so making it seamless so it's on your phone, you can tap it's, it and, and, and you don't at. even know what it is. It's, it's like 1989 for the internet. Yeah, okay. 
Like the internet's been around since the 60s, but no one could get on and it was tricky and how did you do it? And when the graphical user interface arrived, the first web browsers where it became like an easy thing, that's when it happened. Mm. Cryptos and blockchain are both a long way away yeah, from okay. that, right? And, and the blockchain is just a way to trade things of value with each other. Yeah. That's what the blockchain does. So I don't have to go through any... So the gap is the tech and then yeah. the gap's the regulators. Not regulators and the tech are the two, yeah. The regulators don't want to hand over control of finance and the tech isn't good enough yet to kind of totally circumvent that system. What about the banks? Where do the banks fit within this? Are the banks going, well, we don't want you to go down that path. We'll the do banks are window do. dressing, acting like they care about blockchain and crypto and all of that, but the banks don't want it to happen. And I think that this system doesn't want traditional banking and I think that the banks will, the global financial crisis will look like child's play compared to what's going to happen to the banks in 10 years. Because the truth is we don't need a bank. Yeah. What does a bank do? But the bank's so strong. I sort of look at, look at the, like, um, the conversation that banks have, um, our big four or, or whatever uh, in, in Australia and, and, and they're not so big, uh, about their level of innovation and creativity. No, no granted, they, they are doing a lot of great things. But I think the shareholder structure, investor structure means that by and large they're risk adverse, so they need to protect their own rights. Yeah, so they, they they're not looking to evolve and improve. They they need to protect so they can grow. So some um, shareholder in Europe doesn't complain about their share yeah. price going up and down or sideways. So therefore, they're probably not going to buy a, 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 a disruptive startup. They're probably more likely to buy it and get rid of them than they I'll are buy to it sort and of kill change. it. Yeah, and kill it. Does that? And because they're so big, does that mean they're going to do anything they can do to stop the money system moving in that way? Or are they sort of really it's – kind of, it, it's going to be so strong that it's going to be beyond beyond them, beyond the I think it will go around them. Yeah. I really do think it will go around them. Although finance is different to a lot of – it's different to what happened with tech and, and, and media and music and all of those things because there's more regulation. Mm. Regulation is the most interesting space. Like what happens with the regulation? Uh, but I think that they'll probably get around it in a way. I think that they will. And the challenge, of course, is what they call onboarding and on-ramps and off-ramps. So to get into crypto, you have to translate your money that you've got in whatever currency into the crypto. And that's where the government and the banks have control because you have to put it out of your bank account. Unless, of course, I mean, you can get into crypto by taking $10,000 in cash in your hand and going giving it to someone who wants the 10000 in cash mm. and then they give you Bitcoin equivalent. I mean, that can be done. So you can do that in an analog way, but the regulation is going to be the thing that will stifle it. So I don't think we'll see any of the big banks innovate in this area. I think the innovation, because of the way they'll stifle that, will be technology working out a way to go around it. And I think and, what and you're new going to entrance. see... So new, new entrance. And I actually think new entrance, and I also think new, new emerging economies are more likely to do better in this space because they don't have legacy infrastructure or strong banks. You know, where you, the countries that you've seen hyperinflation in, like South America and parts of Asia and India and Africa, that's where you're going to see the biggest innovations in the next 20 and 30 years. With solar, with cryptocurrency, with every form of tech, you're going to see it in those areas because they don't have legacy infrastructure. Mm. And they will prove that these new technologies are superior to the old technologies and then the modern economies that we have now will have to pivot and respond. That's yeah, okay. where the way I think it will happen. Yeah. Or, yeah, so, so it's unlikely to be the innovation of a, an existing large bank or finance institution. It's more likely to be an entrant fitting with the regulations 
and doing that yeah. well. And I'm assuming building up trust. And building up and trust to, in yeah. emerging markets where the regulations aren't as strong. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to see two of those things now. Yeah. The big innovations are going to come from emerging companies in emerging markets. Yeah. They will have a better system and then that system will start to spread globally and then the incumbents in finance and regulation will have to respond to that incumbency that has done well. Because what can happen is if you can take that money and have a bank in Africa that uses cryptography or a startup in Africa that's more trusted than your local bank with higher interest rates because there's no margin split, then all of a sudden I might be in Australia and have my major bank might be in Africa. Yeah. So the experimenting experimentation is done in places like Africa rather than places like that's Australia right. and the US. That's okay. right. And then, and then because we live in a borderless economy where I can just ship my finances and, and get different rates or have algorithms determine who what the reserve ratios are on lending money out in, in emerging markets, that's how it'll happen. Yeah. So from a general member of the community now, would you be investing in cryptocurrency? No. No? no. It's highly speculative. Yeah. I wouldn't do it. No. Here's one thing that's interesting is that there is always big winners when a new technology comes along, the land grab mentality. It happens. It's a gold rush and people will get rich. The problem is, is that the narrative that we see is the one in six billion chance of that person getting rich. Now, if you go chasing that gold, it's a really bad decision. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't chase it. Yeah. Because, like I said, there's this fixed amount of money in the economy. It just changes places. I'd rather invest in stalwart investments and things that benefit from technology rather than the technology itself yeah. because you expose yourself to inordinate risk. Yeah. You know, for me, the, I'll tell everyone, you know, the thing that I invest in right now is land tracks in exurbs, places of great beauty near major cities yeah, because okay. people will eventually work out, like we've already spoken about, that yeah. people can work from anywhere. And so what you've got is an, a, an ability to arbitrage the silicon economy where people work from anywhere and start to live in their local communities again. Yeah. I actually think we're going to see significant growth in regional areas, sub, you know, satellite cities and sub-cities Mm. Uh, versus the city, and that'll overcome the the housing crisis that we have in many modern economies, where it's expensive, certainly in Australia, yeah. to live. So beautiful beachside, or that's right, that in, kind in of a thing. sort of areas you go. Yeah, that's how right. can it be so Hillside. cheap? And how can it be so cheap? And it's beautiful. And now we've got great coffee and food in the local community, and people living here. And I work for a bank or a research company. Or I'm a freelancer, and I live two hours away from a major city, and that's okay because I just yeah. go in one or two days a week for the meetings. Yeah, we need social facilitation, but we don't need that every day and my house costs one third of the price that it costs over there and I'm not in traffic jams and I'm still highly paid. Yeah, yeah, like people right. are going to work that out. People, we just, we get so caught up in the habit, have to mm. live in the city, have to work and say, why? Why? Mm. Because a photocopy used to be 160 grand and useful. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And one of the things I, I talk about from, do presentations on from time to time, I did one a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it kind of fits with a lot of our research. Maybe it comes from the fact I, I spent my first two years of my life in Swan Hill and, and we do a lot of research going to different uh, cities and towns across Australia. Uh, and when you go to those small towns, there's a there's a love of the town and the friendliness and all the positives it brings, but uh, a stress at the economic vulnerability That's and, right. and what's the future going to hold and my kids have to leave to get a job and, and that, that kind of really, they're that that not having that sort of that psychological safety net underneath it. But really I guess sort of a lot of the conversation we'll have is that we need to 
yeah, we need to shift that. You can create a business anywhere and, and you can get a job anywhere and, and, and how do you be entrepreneurial? What, what do small cities and towns need to do to leverage that? I still think there's that percept, that gap. I had a, one of the presentation I did a couple of weeks ago. Someone still asked the question at the end going, oh, yeah, yeah, but there's people who come in to work on that farming operation and they don't spend money in the, in the town, so that fashion shop there is, is going quite badly. And I said, well, that's the whole point. That fashion shop should be should be selling online or should be doing something a little bit more innovatively. So how do, yeah. how do those small towns... Here's what towns- they've got to do. Small towns have got to realise a couple of things. They've got to understand branding. What will they have a monopoly on? Yeah. Right? There's provenance. Provenance is becoming really important. So champagne's a classic story. Mm. Champagne was the cheapest alcohol you could buy in the 70s, in the 80, yeah. early 80s, because champagne was the cheap bubbly stuff and anyone could call anything champagne until the champagne region went, yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. guess what? We've got this new rule. It's not allowed to be called champagne unless it's from champagne. Yeah. And now it's the most revered of the alcohols, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and its growth has been inordinate. What's your champagne if you're in a local area? What's your provenance? What's the thing that you make or sell that no one else and can? And that might be a food product. Might, might be a be food product. Might be a local beer. Yeah. It might be the raw materials that come from where you've got the, the cleanest air or, you know, the, mm. or from that river or the stuff that you grow that is provenance. And then you've got to get local entrepreneurs who know how to market it and sell it and sell it online to the other people, right? And so selling someone else's stuff in, in a regional area is a really bad idea. You've got to start to own what you're good at, your thing. Because once you do that, you've got a monopoly. No one else mm. can ever be Swan Hill. No one else can ever be the Champagne, Champagne region. So you've got to start to own that and brand that and also realize that the reason our kids went to the city is because production was based there. But now production can be based anywhere and the work is informational. We can come back. And then what happens is if people start marketing there, you're bringing more money in and you're investing in your local community. Mm-hmm. The reason those communities got thinned out is because everyone went to work in the city. And even in local suburbs that are an hour away from the city, we don't invest in our local community because we don't work here. So you don't have lunch at the cafe and you don't buy at the shop there because you drive to the city and you spend all your money in the city. Well, it's silly, right? So I think you've got to understand branding, uh, understand, understand what they can make. What way? How do how we to brand, brand this region and what as they do. Yeah, brand the region and brand the things that you make and brand the local brewery or, yeah. you know, the craftsman who does those tailored shirts that, you know, he's been a tailor for, she's been a tailor for however many years and then sell that online and, and own it and be it. And, and is that individual it. businesses? Like yeah, individual it's individual brewer businesses. And, but is, yeah. is that an economic and development group builds, as well? well is that, it's is both. That a, I reckon yeah. it's both. It's some, having someone who understands the economic development of the region and then having businesses that understand the branding of what they make and the provenance of that and then owning that and facilitating that and globalising that mm. and then getting local kids inspired to stay around and, yeah, they like living here. Well, good. Start a business here. What's something that's cool around here that you guys can do? What are some of the online marketplaces that you could, you could see that a local small region could leverage to I be think, able to... Yeah, to, I don't to, think Amazon or... Yeah, eBay's probably okay for it and Amazon I, I don't really like as an idea because it's very commodity and prices everything. And I think like something like an Etsy is really mm. interesting. Yeah, Etsy's where people make craft stuff. And I, there's a lot of stories of people who started on Etsy and, and did so well that they ended up opening their own store and, and selling direct. The number one thing for entrepreneurs is never, ever, ever build your house or grow your vegetables in someone else's garden. What does that mean? So what that means is that, oh, I'm building a business on uh, Facebook and I've got Facebook or commerce or Amazon Marketplace. 
It is the stupidest thing anyone can ever do. Because here's what happens. You build it up there. They have all the data on what you do. They know what's doing well. They go, yeah, guess what? Jason was selling these beautiful bespoke shirts. We're going to sell them now too. Mm-hmm. And we're going we're to eat his lunch. As soon as you grow your vegetables in someone else's garden, use their platform, they can change the rules or pull up the roots at any point in time. Build it. Build your commerce on your own site. So create your own platform. Create your own platform. Build your own site. Build your own brand. Don't go out there and try and get a million likes on Facebook or a million followers and fans on Instagram or whatever. No way. Build your own thing. For me, the most important thing Like an online sales portal, that kind of thing. Yeah, and even branding stuff. You know, like I, I do a bit on social and, you know, it's unavoidable to some extent, but the thing that I focus on is building my email list. Mm. Because I wanted people to do business with Steve Sammartino. Mm. By the way, if you're listening and you really like this podcast, stevesammartino.com, I do an amazing blog entry every Friday. And if you just sign up, you'll just love it. It'll make your life better. That's all I'm saying. Okay, back. <laughs> back to the show. <laughs> no, back good. to no, the show. T- totally recommend. So good. Yeah, so yeah, I just good. really think you've got to build your own platform. You have to, right? And we've all been stooged. This is the biggest stooge of all time. Mate, don't build Mark Zuckerberg's business. Mm. Don't build Jeff Bezos's business. Build your own business. Mm. Screw them. Screw but you, Mark Zuckerberg. Is there a critical mass about joining something? Is, it, is, there, a, is there a gap in the market of having you something do. to be able to hold it all together? Yeah, well, use their platform and steal their audience. Yeah, okay. Use him. Yeah. Get on early and then tell them, so hey, come over here. So we want to use that to be able to build our own email list, for example. Right. Yeah. Do that to build your own. Now yeah. you're talking. Yeah. That's what I do, yeah. right? I use LinkedIn. I'm going to say, hey, you know, if you like my stuff, You'll love my blog, you know, yeah. so that kind of thing. And YouTube's, I think YouTube's one of the exceptions where I reckon that's valuable. Yeah. Okay. There's something about YouTube and building a subscribers list on YouTube that I think is valuable because I just think that there's something a little bit more pure about that channel than Facebook and Amazon and LinkedIn and all of those. Yeah. I remember a few years ago having conversation when like the, and I, the likes of the Ubers and Airbnbs have done amazing things. It's just um, it, it, incredible sort of what they've been able to do in a relatively short period of time and, and really great stories. But often the story, I guess, at a local level, it's and really smart guys that would be talking and they're very, very pro all of those businesses. I say, well, it's great. Disruption's great until it disrupts your local economy. Yeah, it's great when it's someone leaves. else. That's yeah. right. When the money leaves, you go, well, there's like, it's, it's looking at those different markets. Go, how do we actually keep the money within the local economy? How do we have it so we're, we're exporting disruption, not importing disruption. That's, that's right. That to me seems to be the biggest, the biggest risk we're facing at the moment. Of going, if you just go, oh, that's awesome, that's awesome, and all our money's buying stuff from somewhere else, and we go, yeah. shit, there's no money left. We got really tricked. Yeah, I call it the primary colours stooge. So here's what happened. All these nice, nice guy tech companies came in the 90s because the evil companies back then, they were Exxon and Mobil and all of this stuff. And these were nice tech, tech companies with primary colored logos and friendly and Lego and, oh, and Facebook and thumbs up. And you know what? It's just a stooge. They're just big, evil corporations who are lying to us, stealing our data. We're working for them for free because data is labor. And they're pulling chicanery where they have terms and conditions that no person can understand, algorithms which influence our brain. And guess what? And I love technology. I'm a technologist. I wrote my first lines of code when I'm 10. I love this Mm. stuff. What I don't love is monopoly behavior that governments don't understand where we're not being protected the way that we should. Algorithms should be like, they should be like uh, nutrition panels on the back of cereal boxes where we know what goes in there and how they make decisions. Mm. We've got to open up the black box. 
Again, we just love these companies because what they did was so new and so useful, had so much utility that we forgot and we just handed over everything. And now it's time to sort of st- stop and think and say, is this what we want? Mm-hmm. You know, b- buying into these other people's platforms. We just all just ran to it, didn't we? Like, it was yeah. like, so you're talking wow. about the likes of Facebook, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, Facebook, yeah. Google, all of these guys. Yeah. Incredible utility, no yeah. doubt. But what they have is monopoly network effects mm. where that service, the more and more people that use that service, the better that service gets. Yeah. And that's a problem because what happens is it's a monopolistic kind of uh, behavior where they've gone from being companies to really being public utilities. Yeah. So what we see in a lot of the work we do is that the convenience sort of almost over, um, yeah, sort of t- covers the any privacy concerns or even sort of blinds people to that if, it, if, it's, yeah, if it's easy and whether it's banking or whether it's the, those yeah, big social right. networks. Right. And I wonder, but do you, do you think there's been a, a shift in the last three, six months with the Facebook issues yeah, has, and I think has. Europe's jumped on it and a lot of other places yeah, have jumped on it? Yeah, I think there's it. been a shift and people are starting to realise there's a problem. They don't know the depth of the problem yet and the Facebook stuff that's happened now, I promise you there's more coming. I mean, because here's a company that doesn't care. They pretend to care. Oh, we've got to do better at this. Yeah. In two weeks' time, oh, yeah, that was a mistake. We're going to do better. Yeah, we're going to do better. The problem is that they can't do better. You know why? Because their business model means that they can't monitor everything that gets published and they can't monitor how much data is out there. So you're always going to have problems. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're riding around in a shipping tanker carrying everyone's oil data and it's just got leaks everywhere. And their business model is designed with the fact that they can't plug all the leaks because it's in the business model. The business model is self-publishing, so it doesn't cost us a lot. And then we get a small amount of money from a large amount of people. They only make 6 or $7 per user per year, right? Mm-hmm. It's not much mm-hmm. or per user per month. I'm not sure if it's per month or per year, but it's a small amount of money that if I was selling my data, that $6 is worth nothing to me. But if they aggregate that across billions of people, it's worth a lot of money, yeah, right? Okay. And so that's the problem. The problem is is that the data per person isn't worth much, but if you aggregate, it's worth a lot. But because it's only worth a small amount per person, they can't put the heads or the time into making sure that is protected and used properly. So there's a fundamental flaw in their business model. And because of that flaw, there will continue to be problems in how that data gets misused and misappropriated. Mm-hmm. But people are realising, governments are realising, and I think that either the, these big companies will be split up or there'll be harsher regulation against them. Yeah. But people need to be very vigilant in understanding uh, what they're doing and what, what data yeah. they're releasing, not just blind faith, isn't it, really? Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that's sort of even for our like our local governments or whatever about knowing there's, there's so much data you can have collected that, yeah. that you look at and look at what was it, the... Um, yeah, I saw one recently where it was the, the federal government on the, the, the health network and I thought, oh, God, that seems a bit... They can actually open up your records if they see the need to. Yeah. There's like a key that anyone can open, like a password to get in whether or not... Because if you're uh, passed out or you're, you're unconscious, they can get in. It's mm-hmm. terrible. And the fact that the end users at GPs who don't have an understanding of tech security or privacy, you know, on their little computers there that anyone can see the screen, terrible. And medical data is worth a lot of money on the black market because unlike financial data or a credit card, it can be used as a back door to open up, a key to open up other things Mm. because, you know, that that information is personal and worth a lot and it's easy to get uh, identity fraud and all manner of 
financial fraud. So that's that's really mm. risky. Also, the problem isn't just the data we give. You say, oh, I don't care if they know where I where I am. I don't care if they know what I bought or what store I was in. It's not just the data you give. It's the way that they can make inferences by putting the data together. So, you know, a jigsaw puzzle, mm. if you don't have all of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, but you have, say, half of them, and you put half of those pieces in random order on the floor as a jigsaw puzzle, and each of those jigsaw pieces is a piece of your data. Mm-hmm. What happens is with the machine learning, they can see an entire picture of your face even though they've only got half the pieces. Yeah, okay. That's how it works. And that's why it's scary because they don't have to have all the pieces to know things that you wouldn't want them to know based on how all the other pieces paint a picture. Yeah. What's a bit of... Let's change the sort of the, the mood of it. Well, what's, what's, <laughs> the world's what, good, what, people. What, the world's what, good. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, we had an, an earlier interview where the, the lady talked about her, her children, Lucinda, and she, she just had a six-month-old, our, our youngest ever guest. Um, and Alice, uh, Lucinda's hope for Alice, young Alice, was that, um, yeah, she can create her own world and it's going to be different and it's going to have all sorts of negatives and positives, but it's going to be different, but we don't want to create a kind of a cloud over the top. What, what do you see as one of the sort of the, the blow-your-brain Bits of innovation tech that you're seeing at the moment, something coming through, you go, "Wow, that's just yeah. that's just awesome." Yeah, there's one that has gone off the radar in the last couple of years is 3D printing. While it goes off the radar, you know about the hype cycles that we see. There's a really yeah. famous one called Gartner's hype cycle, yeah. which shows that a technology kind of gets on the radar, and then you have these inflated expectations, and then it drops into this trough of disillusionment, and then it, it might die altogether or come back. I think that 3D printing is going to come back in a few years and people are going to go, oh, my God, from printing plastic little widgets or maybe some metal parts, mm-hmm. now I'm using 3D printing in you know, a multitude of materials in a single print, replicating things from a scan I made on my phone or some software I downloaded or a design of something where I'm printing like real things, mm-hmm. you know, printing food, mm-hmm. printing soft gels, you know, printing a replica of my lungs because I had some disease or heart, because I had heart disease, mm. based on my tissue that then self-replicates. Mm. 3D printing is still the the Mac Daddy of technologies, I think. Yeah. Right? That's the one that's going to come back in 10 years and blow people's mind. It's going to be the end of manufacturing as we know it, mm. because we're going to print anything and everything just by... There's some things called uh, molecular nanobot printers, where they use the elements, you know, the 20 elements from science to mash things up together at a molecular level to create whatever it is we want to create. Yeah. Right, that's um, pure biomimicry. That's going to come. It's already well underway. We can already print in more than 300 materials. We yeah, can even yeah, 3D okay. print diamonds. Food, 3D food, printing, you're plastic. Replicating food, plastic, you'll 3D print clothes. Actually, yesterday I was with Xerox. You know, the original... They did park the Palo, Palo Alto Research Center, which was where a lot of the web yeah. technologies came from. I was with some of those guys yesterday. 3D printed a pair of runners, rubber, a multitude of materials. It blew my mind. I was like, what? I saw that. It looked great. It looked, it, it, yeah. They looked uh, like my runners that were... Exactly. It's just incredible, right? Was, so. I'm going to go out and hang out with those guys next week and have a look at some of their tech. But that, that, that is... See, what happens is, is that something is on the radar with media and then it drops off the radar. But the people are still out yeah. there tinkering away, improving, improving, improving. And, and that is also an exponential technology. 
I think that is going to blow people's mind. Let me give you another one. In 10 years. Yes, on that one. Okay. Could you go to a vending machine, punch in what you want? Yes, you could. Here's what will happen. And you'll have a, say, Jason on the side. It'll, it'll, yeah. it'll be so no one else has seen it That's before. Right. And here we go, I pay my whatever it is, 100 bucks. So I reckon here's what will happen. I reckon we'll trade uh, designs across the internet using blockchain. So instead of you putting your design out there and everyone can steal it, it'll be cryptographically protected. So someone will have a design of whatever new widget that they've created and they'll sell it online in the same way you sell a song, but it'll be protected on the blockchain, right? So no one else can take it unless they've paid for it. Then here's what happens. You go in the short term, it'll be like the old photo processing centers were. There'll be someone who's got 10 different types of 3D printers and there's already a few of these popping up online like Pinoco where you can 3D print things. You send them the file and they print it for you and send it to your house. So you'll have these printers that can print whatever materials, you know, in the main street yeah, in, where you okay. live and you go down there and get that thing printed and then take it home. The exact thing you wanted, the exact one size fits one. So that'll be a big entrepreneurial opportunity. It'll happen at that level first and then wow. graduate to the home because technology has this habit, factory, street level, home. That's mm-hmm. kind of how it works. Factory, office, home. Do the people, do the people drive change as in just the general populist consumers or does the technology drive the change? I reckon it's a bit of both. Yeah. I think to say it's one or the other is, is, is kind of a bit naive because you still have to put a technology in front of humans and then yeah. they need to say, yeah, we want that. Yeah. And then sometimes the humans say, I've seen that thing over there. How can we have that? And the, the job of the entrepreneur is to marry the two, mm. is to take technology to people and people to technology. That's our job. Yeah. So that's how that happens. And there is one other good bit of good news for the future. In 10 years... In energy, well, no one will pay for energy. Energy is going to be like content. You know, solar panels currently have a 30% improvement in cost improvement ratio at the moment per annum. Mm-hmm. And about already now, fossil fuels can't compete at an industrial level. Yeah. That's why no one's funding coal mines, except for our stupid Australian government who don't get it. Uh, solar farms are going to be incredible. Our house is going to be a little power plant and you're going to have a battery. You know, it will be paying yeah, for energy right. in 10 years. Energy will be free. Do a Royal Commission on Energy, terrible idea, waste of money. I can already tell them the end. In 10 years, energy will be free. The end, end of Royal Commission. Yeah. Yeah. Because you'll just pay like a 5K setup or something in your house and then you'll have all the energy you need forever. That's right. We did, we did some quite a large project last year about the, the future of energy and uh, electricity and it was interesting and most people weren't really – I think they'd been – um, bitten badly from solar's promise and that yeah. hadn't delivered and like there's a, a few rebates that weren't weren't the levels that they they'd expected and it was too expensive to put in but but certainly once they we showed them what the future might be it was quite fascinating mainly in regional areas it kind of comes back to that empowering the regions and, yeah. and that, they're, that they're the new future powerhouse of they were going well, we'll go off the grid we can go off the grid can. we can we can do this we you can, can do a little micro grid um, you can go off the grid i mean the energy internet is a really interesting idea few people know about and the energy internet is the same as the information internet except we trade energy with each other right now we trade photos and data and videos and music right and news with content so the internet is based on information and content the energy internet is an internet where if it's sunny in Adelaide and rainy in Melbourne, we trade energy mm-hmm. with each other when we have excess and top up each other's batteries, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden there's this new energy source that regional areas 
can start to build. You know, if I was the mayor of somewhere in South Australia where it's sunny all the time, I'd be building a solar farm today and start trading it down. Mm. There won't be a grid. It'll be people trading with each other. It'll be a mesh network, not a grid, a mm. mesh network mm-hmm. where the only thing that we need a public infrastructure for is the wires connecting the houses. There won't be any power plants yeah. other than those solar farms. Yeah. So we started off the interview with you as a young adventurous boy what are your suggestions moving forward for young people now whether it's kids or you've got two kids how old are your kids my kids are six and eight yeah so whether it's your own kids visualize them or whether it's a little bit older kids or even young people what are your suggestions about what they need to lock into i I reckon you've got to just view life as a series of experiments not a linear path Right, and don't get worried if you make a wrong choice because you can always make a right one. The only wrong choices you don't want to make are, you know, having dangerous accidents or being silly with your health. Right, don't make those mistakes. Mm. They're the mistakes you've got to avoid. Other than that, financial mistakes, career mistakes, fine, fine. You know, it your CV doesn't define you anymore. We don't live in a paperwork world. Right, so I envisage kids need to think about them not as having a career in an industry or a type of job, but to, just to have a multitude of projects that they do and things that they're interested in and just explore those. So I want kids to be explorers, financial and commercial commercial yeah. explorers, where they just look at things that they like and interest them and then just pursue it and go down that path. Yeah. That's what I think. And think about you. So lots of, is it like one of the things we talk about is rather than having, say this is not a commercial side, but it comes back to an individual, rather having putting all your eggs in one basket and going, I'm going to lock into this, is it having lots of small ideas, trying yeah. Yeah, that works, made money out of ideas. that, yeah, might mate. maybe double down on that one, yeah. I like that, or maybe double down on yeah, that. And if I you find something like you that. like, double down, yeah. but don't feel like, yeah, oh, what am I going to do or what job am I going to Don't worry about that. Mm. Just a lot of experiments until you find something you really like. And if you do find something you really like, then do it. It's only me. Like it wasn't until I was 40 that I found something I liked, which is what I'm doing now, thinking, writing, and speaking about tech. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Right? I don't love it as much as some of my passions, like surfing, but I love it enough to make an income out of it because I'm good at it and I like it. But that's it. So you just got to do a lot of experiments until you find something you like. And if you find it, you might want to double down or you might just want to change your career. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to find that the more nimble you are and the more things you've done, all of a sudden those things aggregate to create some value that you can have that no one else can ever have. Because a robot can never have that breadth of experience that you can have. Can never have so been digging where deep, you've done. and that's been a really interesting one. If you can, you can, you can get a good understanding of a topic you're particularly passionate about. Yeah, that right? yeah. do that. Yeah, and if not, just do a whole lot of little things, and all those things will aggregate up yeah, to give okay. you a new like perspective. So I just think. View life as just a set of experiments and a lot of changes. And, and don't worry if you make a mistake. Quit quickly. Quit quickly. But if you're a kid, just be curious. Try a lot of things. And don't worry if you don't know what you do when you want to grow up. I'm in my 40s and I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah, good. So we'll go through just some closing points. Finding you on the socials, what's, what's it? Yeah, like? so LinkedIn, Steve Samatino. Twitter, at Samatino, which is my last name, and Instagram, at Samatino as well. So but which one are you most active on? Probably LinkedIn now. Yeah. used to be Twitter, but probably LinkedIn. But the, the thing that I, you know, I really think is, is my blog, is where I put down once a week. So yeah, SteveSamatino.com. Yeah, you yeah. can sign up there to my blog. I put down one kind of solid thought piece. Right, so tonight I'll be writing one on universal basic income and why I think that's that a bad idea. 
Yeah, and yeah. that'll go out tomorrow. So I think maybe by the time they've heard this, they'll, that will have already gone out. But I do one thing a week on a topic of interest in tech and what's happening in society. And if you read that, you will be across everything that's happening because I just do one good thought piece once a week. So That's good. Yeah, so and, that's where to find me. Yeah. And your books? Yeah, my two books are The Lesson School for God is my recent one, which is like full of tips and tricks on how to future-proof your life how to change a career, how to learn new things, understanding finance and understanding the revolution you're living through. And um, I'm just getting incredible feedback on it. It's been, been really great. It's a great book. Yeah. And my and other you one... You've got some great models in there about sort of the um, yeah, working for someone else versus working for yourself and, yeah. uh, and, and some ways of just stimulating thinking. Yeah. yeah, I've had a lot of people come back and go, I've read your book and I quit my job. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, is that it just, it just shows you, you know, how to manage the economics of you, right? If you yourself, what is the economic and social program of me mm. in the technology world? That's what it does. And you're going to come back de- demystified and go, I get it now. I get where it's going and what it's doing. This is what I want to do, and here's how I'm going to do it. You, you'll know. It's got clear steps on what to do. Yeah, a cool red cover, so it goes faster. Yeah, it goes. It's very fast. Actually, it's a really easy read because my first book, The Great Fragmentation, was quite academic, and this one is very, very readable. Like it's an afternoon read. It really is really digestible, and you go, yeah, I've got it. It's really clear. So what did The Great fa- Fragmentation cover? The Great Fragmentation is a picture of a businessman digitizing. Yeah. It's blue with like a little man in a yeah. hat. What was your basic message from that, though? The basic message in that was that the tools of technology are now distributed and that's going to change a lot of industries and fragment them away, uh, the move away from centralisation. Cool. Good. I mean, I think we've covered a lot. Jeez, we've covered some ground, haven't we? Yeah, we have. That's right. It's been a nice sort of, yeah, what do you call it, about 75 minutes or so? Wowee, we we went deep. We went deep. And I'm sure we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll come back another day, I'm sure. So Perfect. Thank you so much for having me in your home. And first, first interview in someone's house and sort of uh, without shoes. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> cool. It's a shoes-off house. It's a shoes-off house. So good on you. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, Jason here to say goodbye. Until next time, please subscribe to Real People via iTunes, your favourite podcast platform. While you are there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday, same time, emails on everything human-centered, customer focus, entrepreneurialism, and thinking different, popular articles by me, the Squareholes team, and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen, Christy Anthony, and Suet Anantula, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list. You can also follow me, Jason Dunstone, on Twitter or your favorite social media. Thank you for listening. Uh-oh.